Good evening. Uh, please start with me to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, titled, The Glories of the Messiah and His Bride. We'll read in verse 1. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of the truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and peoples, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also in your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in the robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to open your word. Um, Thank you that uh, you would bless us with the opportunity to hear from you, Lord. I pray that you would use me to be the, uh, the conduit to uh, speak what you would want heard. And I pray that you would help me to do so. I pray you bless every heart here uh, to be encouraged or edified uh, in whatever way it is in your will. And we commit this time into your hands. We pr- thank you again for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in general, uh, just a general outline. Um, you could divide chapter into these sections. Uh, verse 1 speaks of an overflowing or prepared heart. Uh, verses 2 through 9 speaks about the Messiah. Verses 10 through 15 speaks of the bride. And verses 16 through 17 is the Father speaking to the Son. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I think David's one of the few people, well, actually there's many, um, that we can hear his heart overflowing in his words. Um, in the, the first chapter, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He's talking about himself, um, just talking about how the Lord has blessed him. I mean, at some point you come to the realization the Lord has blessed you. And it just flows and overflows from your heart. And he's written how many, uh, pouring out his heart in sorrow, in sadness, in rejoicing. Um, Right here, this idea of the overflowing heart, it reminded me of exactly what we did this morning, uh, coming to worship. And I was reminded of... uh, 
Abraham. I think he's a good example of this overflowing heart. Why? And why specifically Abraham? In Genesis chapter 22, we read the account where he went to take Isaac. The Lord asked him to sacrifice his son. So, verse 3, he rose early, saddled the donkey, and he split the wood. He's a rich man. He had servants who could have done all this, but he did it himself. Verse 4, he journeyed those three days. In those three days, you, had to, you have to think, he was considering, I am going to sacrifice my son. I'm going to kill him. The Lord asked me to, but I know and understand that his promise is he will raise up uncountable numbers through this seed. I trust that. I prom- I, and I, he promised me, I know I can trust that. But you know he had to consider that. He's about to do this almost unspeakable thing. Verse 5, he gets to the place where the Lord told him, and he left the young men behind. And then he goes to do what the Lord asked him to do. He offered his best, his one and only son. He waited a long time for his son. The best thing that he had, that's what he was going to offer. And then we know the Lord provided the ram, and he didn't have to sacrifice Isaac, but now his faith was cemented. The Lord knew and trusted that he believed him, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And I thought, as I read this verse, um, what, what Abraham would have felt after he uh, saw that ram, after he sacrificed the ram, and as he was coming back down, definitely a heart overflowing with a good matter, right? I mean, we, we don't read about it, but you know he was happy. Here was his promise fulfilled right before his eyes. He knew he was going to see children from his son. So how does that apply to us? We did this this morning, or many of us have done this all week. Abraham rose early, saddled the donkey, split the wood he prepared. We, throughout the week, read God's word, we pray, we spend time with him. He speaks to our hearts. And he might put a thought in your heart about him. We're preparing. Throughout the week, we meditate on those thoughts as we continue to read. We meditate. Sunday morning comes, or that time when you separate to meet with others, maybe, to consider these thoughts. You separate those things, specifically on Sunday morning. We want to separate our minds from the worries of the week, the worries of our day, the worries of our life. Because when we come here, he is preeminent. Nothing else should take that place, right? He should be at the forefront of our mind. So we leave aside those things, just like Abraham left those young men behind. Why is that significant? If they saw him trying to kill Isaac, they would definitely have tried to stop him. That would have prevented him from doing the Lord's will. He leaves them behind. Then he goes and offers his best. We do the same thing. So as we separate our minds, we come here, and with that overflowing heart, we offer the best of that overflow. That's what we as in our priesthood get to do. We get to stand up and share a thought to, um, as a community, point everyone toward the Lord. We focus our attention on him. So this overflow of a heart just reminded me of what we get to do as believers practicing the sainthood, uh, the priesthood, to come prepare, to meditate, to separate, and then offer our best from the overflow of our hearts. So a reminder to come prepared. We should be doing that. We should be spending that time regularly with the Lord, preparing, meditating, and then separating so that we can offer our best. Now, 2 through 9, we start to read about the Messiah. 
This is the conquering king in all his glory and majesty riding with his sword. He's on his his horse. Um, Verse 4, And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. These characters totally speak of our Savior. He is the word of truth. He embodies humility. Um, He gave up the glories of heaven to clothe himself in flesh, to humble himself. And he didn't come as a prince of some king. He was the son of a lowly carpenter. I don't think you could humble yourself any further than that. Humility was embodied by the Savior. Righteousness, an attribute of God. Jesus physically embodies righteousness, the uh, quality of being right and just. In his words, in his actions, he was righteous. Then we come to this verse uh, at the end of four, I mean, the line at the end of four. Your right hand shall teach you awesome things. That's odd, right? How does the right hand of God teach him anything? He's omniscient. He should know everything. How does that happen? Um, different commentators have wrote different things, but uh, one of the ideas is that the, uh, these are terrible things that this right hand is doing. It's holding a sword. His enemies, as we read on, it says that, uh, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. This is a conquering king. His enemies are literally being run over. And that hand is holding a sword which is bringing destruction, wrath. These are outside of his people. Um, so this is one idea uh, or one thought, a line of thought, train of thought, that the terrible things are... Um, this wrath that's coming. And another, I think it was Matthew Henry, said terrible things that the believer feels as he is coming to uh, the realization of the depth of his sin, the, 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 the put Christ up there on the cross. Um, I'll leave it to each individual to search out on their own. There's much to fear from the coming king if you're not part of his kingdom. It's at least a warning to those who don't know him as Savior. If he comes and you're not within his kingdom, within his family, there is much to fear. In verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now we see the king on his throne in Jerusalem. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your love, righteousness, you love righteousness, hate wickedness. Therefore, you have been anointed. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The oil of gladness speaks to the anointing oil the priests were indoctrinated, uh, inducted into service with. Um, and this is only used twice. It's here in Psalms and quoted once again in Hebrews. It only is in, this oil of gladness is only used referencing the Son, Christ the Son, the Messiah. And he is our great high priest. And speaks of garments scented with myrrh and aloes. Myrrh and aloes were what Nicodemus brought, uh, about 100 pounds uh, to wrap the body, part of the burial um, um, ritual. It could reference to that. Cassia was one of the spices also used at the time. And out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. Um, one commentator wrote that um, this is speaking to the joys of uh, the end 
uh, the joys of the returned king. There's no more weeping. Um, the hymn writer wrote, uh, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Um, he, that was the kind of idea of this. Um, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. This joyous uh, time, song, rejoicing. And then it goes on to the king's daughter and the queen, which we'll come back to later. Now, coming back to verse 2, those are just a few general comments over the that section there. Coming back to verse 2, it talks about the fair one. You are fairer than the sons of men. Who is this fair one? Why does he stand out among all the sons of men? <clears throat> In Job 33, we see this. Uh, we see Elihu talking to Job, and it's interesting the words that he use, uses, and I think we can see uh, a picture there, or at least a correlation. Why is he the fair one? He stands out among men. Why? Because he is the Messiah. He saved. He saved us. Who is this Messiah? In chapter 33, Job 33, verse 23, um, well, the context is he's talking about a man that is on his way to death. He's on his way to the pit. And in verse 23, it says, if there is a messenger for him, a messenger a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his, God's uprightness, then God, he, God, is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. This messenger, the messenger of the covenant, the messenger of the gospel, is the Messiah. Uh, this verse references John, but then it also is speaking to the Savior as well, the messenger of the covenant. He explains God's righteousness to men. He gives the hearer, this messenger gives the hearer the opportunity to know what God's righteousness requires. And then he has the opportunity to repent. He is the messenger of the gospel. He's a mediator. We considered the question this morning. Um, uh, Aaron asked us, is God just in condemning us? And as I was sitting there, I, I had to think also, well, has anyone ever walked this earth that doesn't deserve condemnation as man? Every one of us do, except one. And he's the only one who could stand between God and man. That is the Savior, our Lord. He's the only one who could stand between God and man, one among a thousand, our mediator. And First Timothy says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He was our ransom. We actually sang a, line, uh, a hymn this morning. Here in the broken bread and wine, we hear thee say, remember me. I gave my life to ransom thine. I bore the wrath to set thee free. Matthew and Mark both give the verse. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. First Timothy 2.6 says, who gave himself a ransom for all. The Messiah was our ransom. He stood between God and man. He paid the penalty. He bore the wrath. And then toward the end of chapter 33 in Job, 
it says his life, this man that was restored from the pit that didn't see death, it says his life shall see the light. And at the end of verse 30, it says uh, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. This is a man who was ransomed from death and now he sees light. And, oh, sorry, I skipped one. Verse 26, he restores man to his righteousness. Now that man has been restored, he's, been, he's accepted. If this person believes that the Messiah, the Savior, died for him, took his place, he is now made right with God. So he is a son. So he restores man to his righteousness. And Abraham believed and it was counted to righteousness. And then it goes on to say in Romans, but it's also for us. If we believe, righteousness is ours as well. And then... I'm sorry, at the end of 33, I skipped ahead there. Man enlightened with the light of life. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was was made. Sorry. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here we read of the man that was enlightened with the light of life. And here we see that Jesus is the light of life, light of men. This whole picture is the picture of a Messiah, a mediator, a messenger, a ransom that restores righteousness, that brings man back into right standing with God and gives him the light of life. Everything about our Savior is unique. It would have been enough to just be the Messiah, but everything about him was unique. His birth, his childhood. um, He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, didn't have a physical father. Um, He was given a name, Jesus. He will save his people. And even as a child, all were amazed by his understanding. He was unique as a baby and as a child. His character and his life separated him from other men. This is, these are all aspects of the fair one. Why is he fair? Why does he stand out one among a thousand? He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. His speech, he taught them as one having authority. What a word, in Luke it says, with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. This is unlike any other man. He's unique. And in his death. Murder, is the, by definition, is the unlawful killing of a person, especially with malice. I mean, we, we read about the, uh, the high priests and people gnashing their teeth. I mean, just, they were angry. They wanted this to happen. They, they couldn't stand him because they could never get anything on, on the Savior. They could never corner him with anything. He always outwitted them, if you want. But he wasn't outwitting. They should have known the law. These are the ones who should know the law better than any man. And they couldn't face him. So they had malice in their heart and they wanted to kill him. The unlawful killing of a person is murder. And Acts says, you have become murderers. First Peter, the just for the unjust. Christ, the just, died for the unjust. And his resurrection. There's no one that's ever been raised from the dead. God raised Christ from the dead. He's unique as a man, as a child, his life, and as our Messiah to save. 
Now the second part, verses 10 through 15, talk about the queen, the royal daughter. Um, the queen is not uh, representing the church, represents Israel. Uh, and then they make some comments about her uh, and a lot about her posture or where she is. Uh, it says in verse 9, at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now they kind of go back and forth about Ophir, where exactly Ophir is. Some people say, some researchers and scholars say it's from India uh, to Ethiopia to even the Philippines. I mean, they're all over the place, but really they're saying it's the west coast of Saudi Arabia, somewhere around there. Regardless, from where Israel is, it's quite a trip. It took some effort to get gold from there. Obviously, this gold was of special value, um, maybe of finer quality. Regardless. She's standing in gold of Ophir. Now, she's not holding bricks of gold. <laughs> it's on her. But how did it get on her? It's thread. Imagine what it takes to make gold thread. That, has, that gold has to be beaten down into thin sheets, cut, and then rolled into some kind of strand. This, we're talking extensive work. Gold speaks of holiness. We know that. Um, even going back to the Old Testament, the priest had a plate on his head, a gold plate on his miter, his cap, and said, Holiness to the Lord. The queen is arrayed specifically. She has specific clothing, specific elements to her that give her her own glory and her own honor. Uh, and it's a, it's a beauty. It's a type of beauty other than her, her facial uh, beauty or physical beauty. But she stands at the right hand of the king. And then a little later, we see that the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. I'm sorry. I'm skipping ahead again. Uh, she, verse 10. She's instructed to uh, forget her people. That's what um, we read first in verse 10. Why is that? Why does she, is she instructed to forget her people and her father's house? Um, really, uh, I think this may only obviously apply in this context of different pagan cultures intermixing and, uh, with, the, with the Israeli culture. But um, Solomon, I think, can give us a clue. If you look back in 1 Kings uh, chapter 9, Uh, yeah, verse chapter nine. Sorry, uh, chapter nine, verse twenty-four. First Kings chapter nine, verse twenty-four says, "Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. She came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her." Now, I know you girls have a lot of stuff and you need all the closet space and all this stuff, but I mean, that's, that's crazy. She gets her own house. But then 
you're not next to your king. Here in Psalm 45, it says the queen is at the right hand of the king and that her glory, she's glorious within the palace of the king, not her own. I would submit to you my opinion, but this may be Solomon's first idol. Building a house to his wife. Why? Why would I say that? Who is his wife? She's the daughter of Pharaoh. She's not Israeli. Now look back at chapter 7 um, of First Kings. Uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 7. And he's talking about the other, this chapter talks about the other buildings that he built, right? So he built a house, uh, then he built a house of the forest of Lebanon, and he made a hall of pillars in his house. And then in verse 7, it says, He made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge, paneled from floor to ceiling with cedar. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall, of like workmanship. So he has two of those. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter. Extensive building. Very high quality, similar to his own. He had a throne in his and he made one like it for her and gave her her own throne. When she's by herself, who's she, what's she doing? I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm just making, a, I'm just thinking why, but it, I hope to tie this all together. Verse 9. All these were costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws, inside and out, from foundation to eaves. That's a lot of work. Costly stones. A lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of time. Expensive. And we don't know that the queen asked for this, but we know that Solomon did it. So why do I say it's an idol? What did the Egyptians worship? Actually, they worshipped Pharaoh, first of all, and then they had all these other gods, too. That's what she comes from. And her heart was not with the heart of the people. We can assume that because of what happened to Solomon. What does Solomon end up doing? Back in Deuteronomy, it says, Do not multiply horses, do not multiply gold and silver, do not multiply wives. He marries her, he multiplies gold, he multiplies horses, he multiplies wives. Almost a thousand, right? And it says when he was older, he gave in to them. And his heart turned from the Lord. In chapter 11, it says, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not fully follow the Lord as, as did his father. He went after the Ashtoreths, the god of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Uh, he built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and on a hill that is at the east of Jerusalem, and for Molech. Uh, he did likewise for all his foreign wives. He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense to sacrifice to their gods. So the Lord was angry. So it's a general statement, um, but the idea that he would spend such money, time, and effort to build a house just for his queen, it was the first step with the first wife toward idolatry. 
and then it just slowly progressed. That's how sin works, right? It's, no one just falls into sin. It's like slide, right? That's how we, we talk about it, where it's understood. And then over the years, he kept sliding. And we get that, or we see that there's a difference between this queen, Solomon's queen, and this queen. Here she stands uh, at the right hand of the king. Pharaoh's, uh, Solomon's wife, had her own house. She wasn't next to him. The, the queen in uh, Psalm 45, she forgot her own people. She comes to this king and her focus is on him. If this had happened with Solomon, uh, with uh, the queen, uh, the, the princess of Egypt, she would have forgotten the gods of Egypt. She would have forgotten the ways of her father, who was a god that was worshipped and had all these uh, crazy rituals and all these things. She would have forgotten all that and focused on her Lord, and she would have worshipped him as she's instructed to do in verse 11. Because he, uh, because he is your Lord, worship him. She would have turned from all that. The idea here is this beauty of being single-mindedly focused on the king in worship, in holiness, beauty of holiness. The, the Solomon's is her own beauty, her own power, her own prowess, her own position. She worships him and um, Solomon's wife probably worshiped the gods of Egypt. We, we don't know. It's, it's assumption. So what we can take from that is separation to the king is absolutely necessary. We want to leave behind the old. Abraham, when he left, the Lord said, get out of your country from your family and your father's house. That lines up with what we just read here. Excuse me, the blind man in Mark uh, chapter 10, he calls out to the Lord. The Lord says, what, would, what do you want? He says, I want to see. And then it says, the Lord gave him sight, and it says he threw aside his garment. He was a blind man sitting on the side of the road begging. But when he received his sight, he threw aside his garment. He's leaving the old. He's not going to be the beggar anymore. He's going to be a man that sees. He has new life, new sight. And he moves on. God is interested in finding in us the things of his son. He wants a heart that responds to him. That's what he wants to see. So when we're focused on him, when we forget, as it were, the houses of our father and our families, not literally, but putting aside everything, just like uh, we mentioned before, when we come, we separate from the world all the things that we worry about, work, sickness, uh, friends, issues, bills. We come here, we separate from the world so that we can focus that same idea. We separate from the old, separate from the world to focus on him. And we see that this queen was arrayed in gold, special gold. Obviously, it took time and effort. You know, like he went on to... Uh, these words are there so we can see that. Why? Why was she arrayed so beautifully? Because, and specifically with those things, it wasn't gaudy. It was a glory, but it was the king's glory. He gave her that gold, got that gold. We read a little later in Kings that Solomon got 400-something shekels of gold from Ophir. Um, and the idea is the glory is from the king. She is glorious within the palace and she stands at the right hand of the king. 
the glory is she's not queen because she married the butler. She's queen because she married the king. Her glory comes from the king. And it's the opposite in Pharaoh's house. I mean, in Solomon's house. She's glorious because she's Pharaoh's daughter. She gets her own house and she gets all this other stuff and special privilege. Anyone know who that is? Curious. Anyone? That is King Edward VIII. Does the name ring a bell? Does anyone know what he did? Well, it's on the, it's on the PowerPoint. He gave up the throne for the woman he loved. He was His father died and he was the, the Prince of Wales. And his father dies, he became king. He meets her, Miss Simpson, falls in love with her. She's an American, but she's divorced. And the royal family and the government and other people didn't like that he would be tarnish the family name and tarnish the royal line with this kind of uh, history. And so he was king, and I, within nine or ten months, I believe, he said, you know what, I can't handle the royal, the royal duties and the duties of life unless I have the support and love of the woman I love next to me. So he abdicated. He gave the throne up. What struck me when I read this, he said, "No, I mean, I asked the question, nobody knew who he was. I mean, it's not that old. This is 1931. It probably may or may not be in our history books. But no one remembers them. No one knows her, and almost no one knows him. Most, maybe in England, people would know him, but no one remembers her. Even with his royal power, ability, influence, he couldn't undo her reputation to fix her. All he could do was leave. Now, we cannot compare him with the Lord. I mean, who is he? He's just a man. But what a contrast when we compare position and title. A king leaves for his bride. Our Lord left heaven for his bride. She had a tarnished reputation. He died removing every shameful sin, every remembrance of guilt, a guilty conscience. But then he raises himself back onto the throne. He retains his royalty and he makes her his bride. What a contrast. That's our Savior. Man could never do this. You can't undo your reputation. The Lord cleanses consciousness. I thought that was a pretty uh, neat contrast there. And the story, too. That's what the king did for his queen, the church. At least we could draw that lesson from here because this doesn't refer to the church, but we can take that lesson away or at least that, that thought, that line of thought. And finally, we have uh, verse 16 through 17. Um, honestly, this is kind of confusing. Instead of your father shall be your sons. I, I couldn't really reconcile that. I, I didn't remember anything from what I've read uh, that kind of uh, makes that equate. But 
Uh, what the commentator says is that uh, God the Father is promising Christ that he will have worthy successors, sons, to the patriarchs. Worthy successors to the patriarchs of Israel. And he will make his name to be remembered in all generations. And the people will praise you forever and ever. I mean, who has not heard the name of Christ? There's probably maybe a few remote places left in the world, I'm not sure. But if you go around to people and uh, just, you know, just randomly a few different instances of where um, people shared the gospel. I recently heard um, that someone shared the gospel with someone over the phone and the person said, no, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. Yeah, I, I am. Thank you for sharing that verse with me. Um, and this person was in another country. Uh, there are those who have heard, but then there are those who have not heard. So he will make sure that there will be worthy sons, that he will make princes on this earth, and that all will know his name. That's the promise of the Lord to his son, the Messiah. Uh, I hope that was um, beneficial. I I learned a lot. Uh, It was pretty encouraging to hear some of these thoughts uh, as the Lord showed me uh, to be encouraged to come and be prepared uh, to have something to offer, but not just to offer that it would be the overflow of the heart and that the the king left the throne for his bride, but he was able to return as king. And not only did he return, he was able to change the tarnished reputation. We don't have a guilty conscience anymore. We don't have the guilt of sin that weighs us down we don't even bear the burden of sin. The Lord has removed it all. Thank him and praise him for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, time that we had to spend in your word together. Uh, thank you for the many different lessons that we can see from these historical accounts of different people and how they all point toward your son in some way, shape, or form. Um, like David, we look forward to the day when we will awaken your likeness. And we give you thanks for all that you've done for us. Thank you again for your word. Please keep us in safety as we leave now. Uh, Bless our time together. Bless this word uh, that was read. And I pray that it would be an encouragement uh, as we uh, consider these things to all that were here. And we commend all those who weren't here tonight into your hands. Keep us in safety as we go. And we commit the rest of this week into your hand as well. Pray this in this uh, precious name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.